If you have a Bible, grab it, take it out. If you have a Bible app on your phone, open it up. If you need a Bible, as John already said, there's some over here on the table. It's our gift to you. Uh, We love the Bible here. We teach through the Bible here, and we have been going for quite some time through the Gospel of Matthew. So we typically will teach verse by verse through books of the Bible, uh, and we are in a season where we are going through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 6, because that's where we are this morning. And I'm just going to get right to work, because we've got a lot of ground to cover, and uh, I like to talk, and so, um, yeah, I just, I got to get going here, otherwise we're not going to get through all this. So if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 25, okay? Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Here's how uh, Jesus starts, and we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's how he starts this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. He starts this portion by saying, therefore. Okay, let's stop there for a second. That's why it takes us a long time to get through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Bible, you know, understanding, hermeneutics 101 here, okay? I'm going to teach you something about how to read your Bible. Some of you are new at this, you're new to faith, you're new to following Jesus, uh, you're, you read the Bible, it doesn't make sense to you. Here, here's a little tip, write it down, uh, tweet it, tell somebody about it. When you see the word therefore, here's the question you need to ask yourself, what is that there for? Okay, is it too early for that? Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? You with me? Okay. Because in order to understand what Jesus is about to say, we have to understand what he's already said. So what he's saying today to us is all implicated based on the things he's already told us. And so what we got to do is go back just quickly and unpack the text that we looked at last week. Andrew preached through a series of verses in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles again, Matthew chapter 6, go up to verse 19. And here's what Jesus said. And this is an entire section where he's talking about uh, how we view our earthly lives, how we view our our earthly living. And, And here's what he says in verse 19. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But, or however, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, so right out of the gate, Jesus comes at us, and Andrew unpacked all this last week, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it is very important for us to have this as a foundation to understand what Jesus is going to say to us this morning. But Jesus comes out and he says, do not build your life on earthly things. So often what we will tend to do is try and find meaning, happiness, contentment, satisfaction, joy, whatever the case may be in earthly earthly things. And what Jesus is saying is that's a foolish uh, endeavor. It's a foolish pursuit because earthly things cannot satisfy the human heart. And the reason for that is because the human heart longs for something more than what is temporal. The, The human heart longs for the eternal Uh, In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that God has set eternity upon the hearts of man. And so often what we do is we try and seek eternal satisfaction with temporary things. And what this leads to is a situation where we're just running, chasing after thing, after thing, after thing, trying to cram more and more stuff into our lives, but it doesn't actually make us happy. It doesn't actually satisfy us. And so what Jesus is saying is if you do that, you're a fool. Because the things you're building your life on will not be able to sustain you. They're not enough. The things, if you're building your life on earthly things, those things one day are all going to be gone. That's what he means when he says moths will, moth and vermin will destroy. 
Your house is going to be gone. Your car is going to be gone. Your kids are going to be gone. Your spouse is going to be gone. It's all going to be gone. And what will you be left with? Jesus is saying, he's forcing us to ask the question, what are you building your life on? And he tells us how we can know this. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are the things that you value the most? We have to be so careful, so careful, because we can deceive ourselves into thinking we don't actually worship things that are not Jesus, but so often our hearts will just be prone into this direction. You cannot trust your heart. Prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Do not trust your heart. Everyone thinks they're the exception to the rule. You're not the exception to the rule. I promise you. And so we have to guard our hearts. The Psalm says that the, or the Proverbs rather say that the heart is the wellspring of life. We have to pay attention to our hearts. We have to listen to the Holy Spirit. We have to ask hard questions. We have to say, what are we actually building our lives on? And then he goes on and he says this down in verse 24, Jesus, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one, hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is he's asking you, who are you giving all of your life to? He's asking you for full allegiance. He's saying, you can't love God and things. You can't love things and God. If you love God, you won't love things. If you love things, you won't love God. So which one are you going to choose? We can either love God and use the gifts he gives us, right? Worship the giver of the gifts or worship the gifts themselves. And when we do that, what we functionally end up doing is using God to get what we want. He becomes like our, you know, genie in the sky that we just... You know, we give him some religious obedience. We show up to a thing on Sunday. We put our kids in a particular kind of school. We listen to a particular kind of music. We don't smoke. We don't chew. We don't date girls who do. And then God's obligated to bless us, right? And Jesus is saying, that's not how this thing works. You can't have two masters. You can't worship two gods. And so he's asking for our full allegiance. And so this is the... This is the garden of what we are about to talk about is growing out of. Okay, so you have to have this as a foundation because Jesus says, therefore, in light of all of that, here's what he says next, okay? I tell you, do not worry. Do not worry. This is his big idea this morning. Do not worry. He's going to say this four times in these verses that we go through. Do not worry. Kind of a timely word for us. It's funny, if you, if you just look around, look at culture in the church, outside of the church, you're going to notice something. It's kind of, it's intriguing. It's, it's fascinating. It, to me, it's, it's just, it's really, really interesting. We, we live in a time where what pretty much every statistical category you can measure, think of, that fits into the rubric of human flourishing, we are exceeding any culture that has ever lived in all of human history. We are wealthier. We are more knowledgeable. We have more technology. We have, you know, better education. We have more access to health resources. I mean, you name it, we're figuring it out. And yet at the same time, to our knowledge, there has never been a culture, a society, a people group who have been more plagued by worry or what some translations of what Jesus is saying here would call anxiety. 
Isn't that interesting? We have less things to be concerned about, but we're more concerned. Just let me just throw some statistical, statistical data out to you for just a second. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, and these are all American statistics, and American uh, commentaries on the American uh, social fabric, but I'm sure they're not a whole lot different here. Here's, here's some stuff for you, some fodder, okay? Anxiety is the most common mental disorder in the United States, affecting nearly one-third of adults in adolescence. Young people are particularly susceptible to anxiety. Over the last decade, anxiety has taken over depression as the most common reason college students seek counseling services while in post-secondary school. In 2016, the American Health uh, College Association found that 62% of undergraduates reported overwhelming anxiety, while in 2015, the number was 50%. Fascinating. I mean, I, I just want to comment on this briefly here. Like, this is not a sermon on parenting, but I'm just going to put this out there. I have three kids, I have four kids, but three that are now like in the middle school and up range, and one that is quickly coming in that direction. I'm getting old. It's happening. It's real. Let me just have a moment to grieve here. Um, but this has forced myself and my wife Kelly to really start to evaluate some of the things that we let our kids do, right? I mean, we live in an age where technology is just like rampant. And, and studies will tell you that the more access young people have to uh, screens, so cell phones, iPads, you name it. And if you follow me on social media, I've been flogging this thing and beating it like a pinata on Cinco de Mayo because it, people need to know this. The more access they have to screens, the more likely, especially young females, will experience anxiety and depression. The statistics are right there. Like, I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't let your kids have cell phones. I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't let your, uh, you know, your, your children be in, you know, on screens and stuff, but you probably shouldn't. I, I will say, I think it would be very unwise of you to let any of your children have unfettered access to these devices. But I'm going to take it one step further because here's what you all just told yourself. Oh, my kids don't have unfettered access. I have all the passwords. I check their DMs. I check their Snapchats. I check their whatevers. I don't even know what any of these things mean. And I'm just like quoting things that I've read, okay? But here's the reality. Even if you do that, I promise you they're smarter than you. I know that from firsthand experience. Okay, so they're like way ahead of the curve on this stuff. Here's the other thing, though. I'm not even talking about the things that they say to each other over text message. Uh, and I'm sorry, if you're in here, young person, you're probably just all of a sudden hated West Village. You thought this was a cool church, and now you're like, I hate this church. I get it. Sucks to be a kid sometimes. You just got to do what your parents tell you. But here's the thing. Here, here's what statistics or, or studies will tell you. It's not so much what they're saying and what they're not saying. It's what they're experiencing. So, so our young gals, middle school till about the age of 16, 17, 18, are riddled with anxieties. It's, it's unbelievable the amount of anxiety that they experience. Here's why. Because they put a picture out on Instagram and they check nonstop to see how many views, hits, likes they got. So it's not that they're texting naked photos of each other back and forth, although that is happening, I promise you. Not my kid. Yes, your kid. You're not the exception to the rule. But our daughters are overwhelmed. And, and this is definitely more real for the females than it is for the males. Boys use cell phones for video games and porn. Girls use it for social media. There are exceptions to the rule, but that's generally how this thing goes. 
Your daughters are constantly being inundated with this sense that they are somehow inadequate. Because I've, I've driven on my daughter's middle school uh, field trips and watched the girls in the back seat with their phones take selfies, look at them and go, that one's not good enough. And they do that four or five times until they get the perfect angle, they get the right filter on it, and then they put it out there. And what that does is it causes everyone who's viewing it to feel less than. I don't measure up. I need to move on. Think about it. Parents, think about it, please. This is an epidemic. Okay, not the point of the sermon. Here's what's even more concerning. We've already touched on this, but there is a direct link between the level of affluence in a particular culture and the level of anxiety that people feel or the distress that they feel. So research shows that the greater degree of affluence increases upwards of three times the likelihood to struggle with anxiety relative to those who live in less affluent contexts. So in other words, the more you have, the more likely you will worry or be anxious. And to some degree, that makes sense, right? I mean, if you have a bank account, you worry about your bank account. If you have a portfolio, you worry about your portfolio. You check it all the time. If you have to walk three hours in one direction to get clean water every single day or twice a week or whatever the case is, and you don't have a bank account, you're not worried about it. You're not thinking about how the stock market is doing right? You're not worried about any of that stuff. Your life is a lot simpler. You have other worries, to be sure, but it's interesting that the degree of affluence that a person has or is experiencing can be directly correlated to the amount of anxiety they feel. So in a world like ours, West Coast, Canada, perfect life, you know, there's probably well over a million dollars worth of cars out in the parking lot, Billions of dollars of real estate in this room. Jesus comes and says, don't worry. You don't need to worry. You don't need to be anxious. And don't hear his his words here as like a harsh critique, but rather Jesus is coming and going, I have a better life for you. I have something better to offer you. John 10.10, Jesus says, I offer you life and life to the full. But you have to submit. You have to come and enter into the kingdom. You have to do things the way that I'm calling you. Check this out. Parents are smarter than kids. God is smarter than you. He knows. He knows. He says, don't worry. Take a deep breath. Relax. And some of you are sitting here this morning, and you're going, you have no idea what I'm going through. You have no idea what my life looks like. I've got more month than I have paycheck. I've got problems. I don't know what to do. And Jesus says, do not worry. And your question is, how do I do that? And listen to what Jesus says next. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you eat or drink or about your body or what you wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. Do they not sow or reap? They do not sow or reap 
or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? What Jesus is doing here is he's essentially giving a little parable to explain, to teach us something about the nature and character of God and who we are in light of who he is to help us to sit underneath his authority and his presence in such a way that brings peace and comfort over our soul. I heard somebody say this week, the gospel of Christ is not a stick to beat people with, but rather a pillow on which we rest our heads. This is what Jesus is offering us this morning, a pillow on which to rest our heads. And look at what he says. He, he says, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or about your body or what you will wear. In other words, he's, he's saying, don't worry about all these worldly possessions, all these things that we've been talking about. Don't worry about them. Right? You, you, don't have to, you don't have to fret. You don't have to worry. And here's why. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? So Jesus asks a question, and the question is a good one. It's one that we need to answer. He says, is your life not more than just worldly possessions? Now, you got to wrestle with this here for a second because we are immersed in a culture that would say to Jesus, no, actually, this is all life is about, right? We're immersed in a culture that is embracing this narrative that says the highest ideal and the highest value is self-actualization. This is the secular narrative. God does not exist. If he does exist, he's sort of like an absentee landlord who's somewhere off in heaven, and the highest ideal for you is what people would call self-actualization, your own happiness and your own contentment. And if your own happiness and your own contentment is the highest priority of life, it's the highest thing you can be in pursuit of, then all the things that Jesus is telling you not to worry about are going to be the things you're going to worry about. Because those are the things that are going to bring you joy, happiness, and contentment. And so anytime anything hard comes into your life, what are you going to do? You're going to want to run away from it. Anytime there's a challenge, it then becomes an affront to your own personal enjoyment and your own personal contentment. And rather seeing it as an opportunity for growth or something that the sovereignty of God could have possibly placed in your path to help you on your way, you're going to see it as an affront to the goal in which you're actually in pursuit of. And what Jesus is doing here is he's critiquing that narrative. He's critiquing the narrative that we are the center of the universe. And he's asking us the question, is it possible... Is it possible that your life is actually more than just stuff? Is it possible that the the zeros in the bank account, the square footage in the house, whatever it is that you're living in pursuit of, is not actually all that there is to life? Look at what Jesus says next. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. So look at the birds, right? They don't have RSPs. They don't have bank accounts. They don't have houses. They're not worried about any of that stuff. Some of you are like, I don't have RSPs. What's an RSP? What's that? And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. In other words, God takes care of the birds. They're not worried. They don't have to worry. Their life is... Simple. Now look at what he says next. This is beautiful. Are you not much more valuable than they? So this is what Jesus is doing here. He's saying if the birds are taken care of by your heavenly Father, is it possible 
that your heavenly father will take care of you. I mean, if you're more valuable than the birds, wouldn't your heavenly father make sure that you have what you need? And see, what Jesus is doing here, he's answering his own question. So when he asks the question, is not life more? He's answering it right here by saying, are you not more valuable than the birds? In other words, what Jesus is saying here is, you're not just a bird. You're actually an image bearer of God. That if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that you are distinct from all other creation, that he bent down, he stooped down, and knitted you together in your mother's womb. He breathed his very breath into your nostrils. And because of that, you have an inherent value and worth to him. And because you have inherent value and worth, he cares deeply about the things that are going on in your life. He wants to take care of you. He will take care of you. And what Jesus is saying here is when you worry, what you're functionally saying is, God, I don't think you can take care of me. But you're actually saying something even deeper than that. You're saying, God, I don't think life is all about you. Remember what Jesus said back in verse 24, you cannot serve two masters. You will either hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money or both God and things. So in other words, what Jesus is saying here is, if you are going to worship things, what this is going to produce in your life is worry and anxiety because you are going to convince yourself that this is what life is all about. What Jesus is saying, don't worship things, worship me, because I am what life is all about. And so then that begs the question for us, doesn't it? What do we worship? What are our deepest desires? What brings us the ultimate joy? And here's a really simple way to answer that question. It's with another question. How do you respond when you don't get what you want? When you don't get the thing that you think you need in order to be happy, what is your response? Right, you might be in here today, and, and believe me, there's a broad spectrum of people in a room this size, in a group this size. There's a lot of people here who are coming from all sorts of different walks of life. Some of you are here this morning, and it, you're balling, right? You, you've got a financial portfolio. You've got a real estate portfolio, and so you're engaged. You're dialed into the markets. You're paying attention to these things. You're mindful, your finances are in order, you got, you know, you got a family, things are good. By all accounts, you're living the North American dream. Life seems really great. What if it was taken from you? What if it was taken from you? What would the response be? Would it, you know, what Jesus isn't saying here is that we, we can't, be sad, we can't be heartbroken, we can't experience, we can't, we can't experience any hardship. But what he's saying is, would this be a crushing blow? Would this be as if your life had been taken from you? If the answer is yes, then it's possible that this then has become the foundation on which you're building your life, your things. You know, and then there's the other end of the spectrum. There's people here that, you know, you, you talk about real estate markets and financial markets, and they're like, man, I only go to the supermarket. Like, that's all I know about. I don't know any about any of these market things you're speaking of. So I don't really actually have anything to lose. 
But you're here, and you look at all these wealthy suburbanites, their lives all put together, and you're just growing in bitterness. You're just frustrated. You're angry. Why do they have what I don't have? Why do they get what I want? I want a family. Why do they have a family? Have you? It's not as great as it sounds all the time. <laughs> right? So, some of you are like, you're a young married couple. You're trying to get pregnant. You're like, my life will be complete when I have kids. Like, only people that have, have never had kids think things like this. Right? Once they come out, they don't get to go back in. It's like 25 years of... But you just have this growing bitterness in your heart as you look around and you see everyone else getting what you want, having what you don't have. And what's it doing? It's, it, might not, it might not be worry in the, in the sense that you think it's worry, but it's causing an anxiety in you that's producing a bitterness that's corroding your soul because you worship things. You worship stuff. You think, when I get this, then my life will be better. And what Jesus is saying is, is not life more when you realize that I am the ultimate treasure, I am the ultimate pleasure, I am your joy and your delight. There's this abiding, beautiful, life-altering, heart-exploding reality that sets in where you're free you're free from the things of this world. You, you get to enjoy them, but you don't need them. You get to use the gifts that God has given you, the things that God has given you, but you don't worship them. And it starts to shift your perspective. I was talking to a family uh, in our church, and uh, they, they said this to me. We are praying. There's a job opportunity in front of them. We are praying that we get the job, and it's a job that comes with more money. And just total side note, it's interesting that we almost never pray about those things, right? More money? Oh, I must. That must be what God wants for me. Even though he says things like it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. But their response was, we are praying we get it. And the reason we want to get it is so we can earn more money. The reason we want to earn more money is so we can give more money away. I'm like, oh, I think they get this. I think they get it. So they don't worship money. They worship Jesus. And they use money to bring honor and glory to Jesus. There's a fine line between those two things, but a big difference. And the question that Jesus is asking us here is, is life not more? Is your life not more? more. Then he goes on and he says this, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow was thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So again, Jesus, just by way of analogy or by parable, is giving us a picture to describe kind of our state in life when we're underneath the rule and reign of God, when we're in his 
kingdom. And he says, just look at the flowers. Have you ever seen a flower that looks concerned? Right? Have you ever looked at a flower and thought, that's a concerning look. That flower has a concerned look on its face. No, no, of course not. Have you ever seen a, a flower and it looks like it's busy working because it, 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 you know, it's got bills to pay, right? That's, that's what he says, right? They do not labor or spin. They don't even work. What's wrong with them? And Jesus is saying it's because they trust that God's going to provide for them. Obviously, this is, a, you know, an analogy here. And what I don't want you to hear is that we're not to work, right? Some of you are, you're like, yeah, this is great. We don't need to work. We should you know, just sit around, eat potato chips, watch Netflix, play. What? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. And I actually think there's probably a correction that needs to be made in the church. Sometimes, you know, in a church like ours, we can think that because we're preaching the gospel, the grace of God, saved by God's merits, not our own efforts, that somehow the gospel is in conflict with, with work. It's not the case. The gospel is not opposed to work. Grace is not opposed to effort, but we cannot earn God's grace. We cannot earn his love. We cannot earn his favor. I actually hear this a lot around here. I think we, in some ways, at West Village in particular, we may have an under-realized gospel. If I had a nickel for every time I've probably said or heard a conversation that went something like this, you're talking about someone, their junk is coming to the surface, their brokenness is coming to the surface, and this is the response, oh, we're all broken. We just kind of excuse away our sin because we're all broken. That's true. But Jesus died to save us. Jesus died and rose again and sent the Spirit to fill us, to sanctify us, that we would become more and more like him. And I think there's something in us that should desire, should long to bring honor and glory to him. That as the Apostle Paul says, we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That we should not be like, well, you know, I'm a sinner, saved by grace, so I'm just going to continue to be a sinner. You know, one day I'm going to stop dealing with this issue. One day I'm going to stop lying about this issue. One day I'm going to get up off the couch, walk across the street, knock on my neighbor's door, and actually invite them over for dinner, and by God's grace build a relationship with them so that I can share the gospel with them. One day. I don't think that's the gospel. I don't think the gospel gives us permission to be lazy or slothful. We are to work. We are to put forth effort. We are to provide for our families. We are to take care of ourselves. We are to do our best to pursue holiness in partnership with the Holy Spirit by God's grace for his glory. Amen? So don't hear what Jesus is saying here and then take it and say, well, then I don't need to do anything. No, you need to do a lot. <laughs> and God will help you in your doing, but you need to get up off the couch and start pursuing obedience to him. And what Jesus is saying here is that God will provide for you. He will take care of you. You don't have to worry. You can trust him. Uh, there's a little tool that we use around here. It's called the four G's. And they're going to be up on the screen, I think, hopefully. And all the elders have these tattooed uh, on various parts of their bodies. Ken DeSaw, if he gets installed as an elder, Amber's going to actually tattoo these on him uh, at, the, uh, at the Vision and Prayer Night next week, so you're going to want to be there for that. But you can see these four Gs. I would highly recommend you memorize these, write them down, take a picture on your phone. This is good stuff here, okay? These are what we call the four eternal truths about God. These are put together by a guy named Tim Chester. They're in a book called You Can Change, which we sell at our bookstore, which next to the Bible is probably one of the best books you could 
and should read. And here's what the four G's are. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction or anything. God is gracious, so we don't have to work hard to prove ourselves. And God is great, so we don't have to be in control. What Jesus is saying here is this. He's asking us a question. Do you trust God? Do you trust that God is great so you don't have to be in control? What is at the very root of anxiety and worry? Wanting to be in control. So often we're worrying about things that we, we actually have no ability to impact whatsoever. That's what Jesus says back in verse 27. Can any one of you worry by worrying add a single hour to your life? The answer, of course, is no. We fret and we worry about things that may or may not happen in the future that we have absolutely no control of whatsoever. And consequently, what we do is this. We say, God, we do not believe you are great. So we have to be great. Because you're not in control. So therefore, I must be in control. And the invitation of Jesus here, look at what he says. He says, you of little faith. The invitation of Jesus is to get off the throne. And let him be on the throne. To acknowledge the fact that you aren't great. And you do a lousy job at controlling the universe. And that he indeed is great. And even though everything might not go exactly the way that you want it to go. And you might not have everything you think you need. You will have everything that you need. I wrestled with whether to go here this morning or not because I've just been mindful of some of the stories I share from the front. Uh, you know, going back to the social media thing, I very rarely post on social media now. I only post like things that are like super provocative and you know poke the bear a little bit. But I almost never share photos of my family or myself or like, hey, this is me, and my awesome wife on our awesome date night because we have an awesome marriage and our family's awesome. And you know, the net result of that, of course, is you go, why didn't my husband ever take me in today? What's wrong? Why can't you be more like Chris? And then really what we should post is like the other six days and 23 hours where like my wife just wants to stab me in the throat with a pen because I've been a moron, right? Like last night, last night I was trimming my beard and I had to change the battery on our, this is nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning, but just to show you what a bozo I am, because I'm about to tell a story about us that kind of makes us look good, although trying to make Jesus look good. So I'll just tell you how bad I am first. So I'm trying, I'm trimming my beard. I uh, need to change the battery, take the lid thing off the battery compartment. And I'm like, Callie, this is like, every, Callie, can you help me? Because all I know how to do is preach sermons and read books. It's basically, uh, Callie, how do I, what do you do here? There's like a battery thing and it's not working. So you got to change the battery. I'm like, well, where do we keep the batteries? She's like downstairs in the thing. And I'm like, well, can you call one of the kids and tell them to bring me up a battery? She's like, oh, I'll do it. And I'm like, well, wait, wait, what size of battery is this? She's like, it's a double A. I'm like, well, how do you know that? She's like, because I'm not a moron. 
I'm like, well, you just know, like, apparently that's just a common knowledge thing. These, these ones are double A's. Okay, I did. Yeah. It's my life. That's her life. Pray for her. What were we talking about? Jesus. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Okay. So, so here's, this, here's this deal that we've been doing at our house probably for the last number of years. We, we have just gone on this journey for a while now. We're, I just got convicted. We got convicted that we just don't ever want to be comfortable. Not because we don't like being comfortable, but actually because we do like being comfortable. And it terrifies us. It terrifies us that we would ever just be able to put our feet up on the coffee table and go, oh, we've got this. And I won't go into all the details, but we've just been organizing our life in every way that we possibly can, from the vehicles that we drive to uh, the way that we live and the way that we organize our finances. Like, we've intentionally been doing everything opposite that every good financial manager would tell you to do. So they say, you shouldn't live paycheck to paycheck. We're like, we're going to live paycheck to paycheck. Like, that's our goal. Our goal is to, like, just live as lean as possible. And there's been times, and we... We just talked about this at our dinner table the other day. There's been times where we, you open up the fridge, and I felt this, like, in this season that we've been in. You open up the fridge, and this isn't like, give us money. We don't want it. If you give it to us, we're just going to give it away to somebody else anyway. So you open up the fridge, and there's, like, quote, unquote, no food. Like, there's food, but, like, you know, not good stuff. It's like the avocados and stuff. Who's going to eat those? Why do we even have these? And my proclivity was to go, Man, we're so hard done by. The Spirit said to me one time when I was trying to make my lunch and I'm piecing it together like peanut butter and salt, like it was just like, this is not going to be enjoyable. Spirit said to me, I provided for you today. I provided for you today. I am great. I'm in control. And we were sitting at the table this week with our kids, in light of this sermon, we just went around the table, we shared things, ways that God had provided for us. And I, I asked a simple question. I said, have any of us missed a meal in the last, I don't know, a couple of years? The answer is no. Never missed a meal. Because God provided for us. And I, and I don't want you to look at that and go, man, be like Chris and Kelly. Don't, don't be like Chris and Kelly. That's something that the Spirit has put on our hearts, a journey that we've been on. But I would ask you this question. What are you building your life on? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to talk about two different people. There's somebody who builds his life on the rock, which is the person who builds his life on the sand, which is something other than the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus will say, he says, the wind and the waves, the storms of life, they are going to come. They're going to come. Hardship is going to hit. Difficult things will come your way. It is inevitable. We live in a Genesis 3 world, post-fall world. Until Jesus comes back and takes us home to look him face-to-face in all his glory, we are going to experience hardship. And the question is, in that moment, when the real estate market crashes, when the financial market crashes, when your kids go sideways, when your marriage goes sideways, when things don't go the way your health, you go to the doctor this week and you get a bad report and it all goes down the tubes. What have you been building on? Is it Jesus? 
Or is it something else? Because you cannot serve two masters. You will love one and you will hate the other. Jesus is asking, do you trust me? You trust me. And then he says this in verse 31 32. He says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So Jesus says, Listen, there's, there's two ways to live your life, right? You can live your life in such a way that you're going to worry, you're going to chase after the things of the world, you're going to chase after your own satisfaction, you're going to chase after your own security, you're going to chase after it, you're going to pursue it, you're going to want it. And again, the gospel is not opposed to effort. The question of the gospel is what's your motivation for what you're doing? But listen to what Jesus says. He says that's what the pagans do. Pagans meaning those who don't know God. They don't know about the love of the Father. They don't know that, that God cares about them. They don't know that Jesus came and died on the cross for them. They don't know that they have value and worth. They don't know that there's more to life than just stuff. Jesus, if you live like that, you're just living like everyone else. This would be like a functional atheism where we raise our hands in worship on Sunday, but the rest of the week we just live like the rest of the world. And what Jesus is saying is if you're going to humble yourself, you're going to submit to my kingdom, then, then here's the deal. We look different. We don't embrace the gospel of, of culture. We don't embrace the secular narrative that says self-actualization is the highest ideal. We don't pursue our own gain. Listen, what Victoria, what our city does not need is a group of people who live life just like everyone else. They're worried, they're anxious, they're stressed out, they're frustrated. They overshare all the time on Facebook about how life has done them wrong. And they go to church on Sunday. And they have a faith in Jesus that is so weak and anemic that it makes no difference in their lives. but a group of people who have, who have radically embraced the gospel of the kingdom and who are radically in pursuit of the gospel of Jesus and radically desire to bring honor and glory to him and who live countercultural to everyone else. Jesus is saying when you do that, the world will see that I am indeed good. And by God's grace, we have a lot of that happening here. I mean, I can just... There's people in our church family right now who are like, how do we remortgage our house so we can add bedrooms so we can take in more orphans? Right? Like, that's awesome. How do we earn more money so we can give more of it away? How do we serve the least of these? We have an entire community group that hangs out with street people desiring to serve the least of these. How do we orient more and more and more and more of our lives around the gospel of the kingdom, around King Jesus? How do we give more of our stuff, more of our time, more of our money? How do we let go of the things of the world so that when the world looks at our lives and they look at the way we live, here's what they see, that we serve a different master. We belong to a different story. The narrative of our lives is not the narrative of culture. It's the narrative of the kingdom. 
That's what our city needs. It doesn't need more stressed out, burned out, annoying church people. It needs more people who have humbled themselves and submitted their lives to Jesus. I'm going to invite the band up. I need to close. Here's where Jesus winds up. This section ends up, ends this section. He says in verse 33, but seek first. In other words, here's how we do this. Seek first his kingdom. Seek being the, the passive imperative, meaning that it's this ongoing thing. It's not a one and done. It's not I put my hand up at summer camp, right? And now I'm following Jesus. It's not I prayed a prayer after the end of the sermon with every head bowed and every eye closed, and now I'm a follower of Jesus. That's not what Jesus, he's saying. This is ongoing pursuit. In the same way that the pagans pursue the things of this world, we are to live a life that is in constant pursuit of Jesus. It's in constant pursuit of his kingdom. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself, and each day has enough on its own. This verse has been completely hijacked by the prosperity gospel preachers. Completely hijacked. If you pray, if you go to church, if you do stuff, God's going to sprinkle fairy dust on you and make your life awesome. It's not what Jesus is saying here. It's demonic. It's demonic. That is not his promise. His promise is this, if you humble yourself and give your life to him, you will become one of his kids and your heavenly father will take care of you just as he sees fit. How do we do this? There's two stories. There's two stories that are in God, uh, in the story of, of uh, God. Matthew chapter 19, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, how can I get into your kingdom? Right? This is the kingdom that he's preaching about here. How do I get into your kingdom? And, and Jesus looks at him and he knows his heart. And he says, well, here's what you got to do. You got to sell everything you have and give it away to the poor. And in Matthew's gospel, you, Matthew records that this rich young ruler walked away sad. Because he couldn't do it. In other words, he loved his stuff. He couldn't let go of it. He, he had to cling to it. And the thought of letting go of it to enter into the kingdom of Jesus was too much to bear. I mean, this is, this is obviously begs the question for us, right? Like, would we, would we sell it all? Like, would you? Would you sell it all? Would you, would you give it all up? Like, would you rather be homeless and a follower of Jesus or have a house and go to church on Sunday? It's a good question to ask. I don't, I don't. Then there's this other story in Genesis chapter 22. It has a son Isaac. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to uh, take him to the top of the mountain. I want you to sacrifice him to me. The atheists, the skeptics, they've had a, they've had a field day with this story. Uh, they love to use this to discredit the opening here is God's doing the same thing here that Jesus was doing in Matthew chapter 19. I mean, 
we, we don't know the mind and heart of God. It's, it's totally conceivable in Matthew chapter 19 that this rich young ruler would have said, okay, Jesus, I'll do it. And then Jesus would have said, okay, I just needed to know that you love me more than yourself. I, and I don't know. That's the question I asked. Well, what God's doing in Genesis chapter 22 is he's asking Abraham the same question that, the, that Jesus was asking the rich young ruler, which is, do you treasure me above all else? Like, this is your, this is your firstborn son. This is the son through which my covenant promise is going to be fulfilled. Now I'm asking you to sacrifice him. And Abraham can have a category for this. But in obedience, takes his son, they go to the top of the mountain, he's preparing the sacrifice, and in the middle of his preparation, God stops him. God interrupts him. And he says this to Abraham. He says, now I know that you fear God. Actually says in Hebrews chapter 11, talking about Abraham, that his faith in God was so strong that he believed that God would probably raise his son from the dead. So he was willing to do it. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve two masters. And so the question that this text, that Jesus is calling out to us, the question we need to answer is what do we need to give up? What won't we give up? Would you give up your kids? I mean, I don't think God's asking you to do that. Let's just be clear. Would you give up your business? Would you give up, for some of you, would you give up your pain? Some of you are holding on to your pain. And Jesus is saying, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve your past and me. It's time to move on. It's complicated. There's a lot to that. But he's inviting us to come and lay down whatever it is that is keeping us from experiencing the fullness of his kingdom right at the foot of the cross. Will you do it? Do you believe that God is great so you don't have to be in control? In Hebrews chapter 12, the author of the book of Hebrews writes, right after he describes the faith of Abraham, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything, everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. 
Jesus paints this picture for us with his life. And it's this beautiful picture. Apostle Paul says that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He let go of it. He let go of his deity. He let go of his perfect union with his heavenly father. He let go of all of the glory of heaven to enter into the brokenness of the world. And for the joy set before him, the joy of what? Of glorifying his heavenly father. He endured the cross. And so the question then for us is, what do we need to let go of so that we can live in the fullness that God would have for us? We're going to move into a time of response where we're going to sing, we're going to give. If this is your church, then I encourage you to give like Jesus, but we're going to come forward and take communion. There's going to be two stations down here at the front. At each station, there'll be, there'll be crackers and wine or juice, whichever you would prefer. You can come forward. They represent, they represent what Jesus has done for us. That he laid down his life for us. He gave up so much for us that we might be called the children of God. And the question is, What's our response to that? Let me pray for us. Invite you to stand as I pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and mercy. Just in this moment, Lord, would you speak so clearly? Would you show us what we're clinging to, what we're holding on to? Would you show us that you're better, that you're kind, that you're good? Lord, there's work to be done in this room, and so we invite you to come. Have your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.